Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with Mental Health America of Wisconsin. We are your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We are not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and have interviewed hundreds of others who do as well. By sharing stories of lived experiences, we expose depression for the lying bully it is. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Terry. We're going to start this episode with some recent data from Mental Health America. It's grim. And maybe an audience of people with depression doesn't need to be convinced how racial injustice, violence, the pandemic, and the intense divisiveness of the political environment, among other factors, have taken a huge toll on mental health. But it does set the stage, if you will, for Suicide Prevention Month and why, in addition to the increased need for help in these times, there is also an increased need for hope. And shared stories of recovery from people who have been at or over depression's most dangerous line can offer that hope from a place of knowing. So a few minutes for the data. We've repeatedly recommended and linked to mhascreening.org as a free and valuable resource for monitoring our mental health and to connect with tools and resources to improve or maintain it. Quoting MHA's national president and CEO, Paul Gianfrido, since the end of February, more than 263,000 people, over and above what we would have expected, have screened moderate to severe for depression or anxiety. Most worrisome are the 90,000-plus people who report regularly thinking of suicide or self-harm. More than 30,000 in the month of July alone. If you are one of those many people, or if you know someone who is really struggling, we truly hope that you will let in the words of this week's guest, Bob. He is a 64-year-old professional, a father, a grandfather, and the survivor of a suicide attempt five years ago. Here now is Bob speaking publicly about his attempt for the first time and giving his voice to depression. Well, before we start, I would want to just establish that before you did this interview, you asked your therapist if it was okay for you to do it. I did. I certainly did. I've had the same cognitive behavioral therapist for nearly five years now. And um, when you had mentioned the opportunity to do this with you, I did chat with her about it. And she said, by all means, if you feel comfortable doing it, go ahead. Um, She felt that my my place in life and, and where I am right now is strong enough that certainly wouldn't wouldn't be harmful to me and my intent with this is to hopefully help others who are either thinking about suicide or have have attempted and are on the road to recovery um, to share I guess the message of my struggles and my return back uh, from those struggles to a place right now that at 64 um, I feel better than maybe I've ever felt in my life in case you missed those last critical words Here they are again. At 64, um, I feel better than maybe I've ever felt in my life. Please keep that in mind as we go back to learn about how different Bob felt just five years ago about his future and himself. 
Well, I was in a depression. I'd also um, been misdiagnosed with a hip problem. I was on some pain pills, and that certainly didn't help me emotionally, mentally, or physically in the end. Mm -hmm. um, I was struggling with a lot of things in, in my personal life. Um, so there were a lot of pressures that, that I wasn't sure that I could just keep, keep going. Um, I looked at my longevity and, and looked what I still had to, to, what I felt I had in front of me, and it was something that I just felt that, you know, I don't know how I'm going to keep doing this. Um, I, I couldn't find a level of peace and calm. Um, things that I thought would fulfill me, I couldn't find that, that level of fulfillment that I felt like I was doing good for other people. I, I just felt like my contributions just weren't enough, and therefore I wasn't enough. We call depression a lying bully at the start of each episode. And convincing us we're not enough is one of its harshest lies. Believing that lie creates the fertile earth where the really dangerous deception can thrive, that others would be better off without us. Because as dozens of attempt survivors have shared here, that thought removes the life-saving hurdle that we really don't want to hurt the people we love. I think for me it became as I think through this sort of twofold. One was, I'm tired of feeling this way. I just, I, I'm, not, I'm not functioning. I'm no good to anyone this way. Um, let me get out of the way so other people can just live their life without having to worry about poor Bob, who's sick and who's been through treatment and you know who's caused so much pain in the past. Um, those were the stories I started to tell myself. Um, so it was more of, it started there and then it manifested into, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't. I just can't. I can't live this way. And there is only one way out because I can't fight anymore and I can't disappoint people anymore and I can't drag down other people's lives. So I'm just going to get out of the way and be done and everyone will be happy and I'll be at peace. That's that burden syndrome. Right. That burden, man, that word. Whenever that thought crosses our minds, that is so right. dangerous. Was it sudden? Was it like, I've yes. got to do this and I've got to do this now? It wasn't yep. something you've been planning for no. weeks. No, it was very sudden. That's what they say. Probably within 15 minutes of the thought. So, fast forwarding, I assume you wake up in a hospital. I did. And that immediate thought, is it, shit, I couldn't even do that? Or is it, I'm so glad to be alive? Or is it something completely different than either of those? Um, I don't know that I woke up thinking I was so glad to be alive, mm -hmm. but I woke up thinking I'm alive. I, I woke up wondering what lied ahead of me. Um, I didn't know that. I don't remember having a thought that says, damn, I wish I was dead. I don't remember that thought. One thing Bob does remember clearly and never plans to forget is the compassion and care he received from a medical professional that day. I had a nurse who 
in the recovery room was incredibly kind to me. Um, she held my hand. She wept with me. Um, she, she spoke to me about how glad she was, even though she had no idea who I was, that I was alive. And that, 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 that conversation, that warmth that she shared with me, um, put me in a different place. Uh, really? She then followed me, asked if she could follow me to my permanent room, um, where my recovery was going to happen, and, and stayed with me through an extra shift, um, wow. which was just remarkable. And this was a person I did not know. I did not know. That stuck with me. It's something that was one of the many catalysts, I think, that, that helped me heal through this and get to a point and, and decide that I am worth living for and that my life is worth living. Right. Is it that if a stranger can find me worthy, I can? I mean, is that the thought process? Am I hearing that right? Yeah, I think, I think there's something to that. Um, that I'm certain that she was a remarkable human being who valued her own life. Um, and, and I, I don't know what had happened, you know, within her life mm -hmm. either. Maybe there had been someone that she had lost. Um, I, I, I'll never know that. But I think there is something to that thought that, that helped me in a way that I, I, I didn't, didn't know possible. It was such a simple thing, but it was remarkable on her part that she stayed with me and supported me. The thought that I'm having, and again, I don't know if it's true for you, is that she saw value in you just because you're a human being, right. not because you had any car or any house or any background or any education or any anything. You had value as a human being. Exactly. She didn't know anything about me. Wow. But she valued me as as a person. I I should be supported and I should live and I should get through this. Did that take some pressure off to realize all you had to be to be worthy of, of life was being a human as opposed to being a highly successful or whatever other words had been put in front of that word for you? I wish I could say I remember it really clearly, I, 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 but I do think so. I think... I even mean now. I don't even oh, mean yeah, in the moment. It does. Yeah. Right. It, it, it does. And as I reflected back on this, it was a starting point for me mm. that, that helped me get grounded in the belief that, wow, <laughs> this could have, could have been it, Bob, could have been it. And, um, I think it helped me put my life into a different perspective and into a place that said, okay, you really have to get serious now about, about what is happening in your head and you have to you have to approach this so much differently and there can't be any distraction your mental health is your most important thing right now and so i i didn't fight that thought a quick note if you are not aware of how dangerous a time those first weeks after discharge can be for a suicidal person Please look up our podcast, episode 133, called Post-Hospitalization Risks. 
Listen to it. Share it. Because for whatever reason, hospitals often don't communicate to survivors or their families the alarming risk during that time. Back to Bob. He's worked at the same company for decades and was fortunate enough to get a 90-day leave of absence from his job. He committed to using that time to learning new coping skills, understanding the illness, and building his resilience to it. It took a lot of pressure off of me, knowing that this was my time to heal. This was my time to begin a regimen of therapy that would help me. And I did that. Um, I went into inpatient treatment for, I think, 10 days. And it was a very difficult 10 days. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the difficult things were confronting my family about what I had done. Not confronting, but sharing with them, telling them what I had done. Oh, you had to tell your children? Yes. Oh, gosh. Two adult children, a sister, um, and an aging father. And that was really hard. That was really hard. Wow. Yeah. That's a conversation. Yes. It's said that from the outside looking in, mental illness is really hard to understand. And that from the inside looking out, it's really hard to explain. Well, suicide, whether recurring thoughts of it, an attempt, or a death, are exponentially harder. Not everyone is going to be able to understand, to forgive, to move past it. Suicide affects whole families and communities. And that truth is something else attempt survivors have to recover from. And then I also, at that point in time, started seeing three therapists. I had a DBT specialist, my cognitive behavioral specialist, and another therapist for talk therapy. And I did all three of those therapists for the better part of almost two years. And it was a lot of work, (laughs) and I took it seriously. The therapy that worked the most for me was cognitive behavioral therapy. It helped me work on my fears. It helped me work on things that maybe I'd always wanted to try to do, but was afraid to try to do because I was worried about the results. Um, It helped me with my body self-esteem, which had been a problem for me all my life. And at the end of the day, I think what it really helped me get back to was helping me live my life according to my values. I never felt like I was someone who sought approval from other people, um, but I think I sought to fit in and maybe not stand out. Uh, I think I sought to fit in in a way that I was deemed by so many as a success. Um, Home, cars, strips, kids, clothes, um, some are basic needs and some became, you know, much more extravagant. And I didn't find joy in the extravagant part of that. So you may have just answered this in part between therapy and um, a values-based life, but you still have depression. I do. And so I assume, like the rest of us, sometimes the thoughts turn dark. Are you able to catch them early now and do something or some things to to protect yourself? Um, how, you know, how do you keep yourself from hopefully ever nearing, let alone crossing that line again? 
Well, that's a really important question, I think, for anyone who's struggling with depression, and especially those of us who had attempted. Um, I've been pretty transparent about my suicide attempt with a handful of people that I just love and trust, totally. They don't judge me. They believe in me for who I am, for what my values are, and, and how I lead my life. And so I will reach out to them. I'm really good at saying, not quite right. Can we talk for a while? Mm-hmm. And that has really helped me a great deal. Bob, like many of us, also benefits from creating and maintaining routines, controlling those things we can control. Um, even during COVID, which has been difficult, I got up every morning, I showered, I shaved, I got dressed. Um, I did everything I could to make sure that I was leading a life that wouldn't allow me to slip away quickly into a dark place that would be hard for me to get out of. I took care of myself um, at some point a handful of months ago. I got real serious about my diet. I've been really trying to take care of my mind, body, soul, and spirit as best I know how. There's a phrase and a book titled The Body Keeps the Score. Its theme, to quote a summary, is that the effects of trauma live on not only in the emotional mind and the chemical makeup and circuitry of the brain, but also in the body's physiology. In the case of a suicide attempt, that trauma may also be visible. And there are times that I forget. I forget that I nearly took my life. Um, I have reminders of that. And those reminders are good for me visually to remember Hmm. because I don't let myself get back to that place again. I will not. So would 59-year-old Bob ever have believed that 64-year-old Bob would be happy? No. No. Are you? Are you glad you're alive? Oh, gosh, I'm glad I'm alive. Every minute of every day, I am glad I'm alive. And more and more so every day. I think the more I get back to really living my values, um, to doing the very simple things that I love, and acknowledging the fact that I am enough, just as I am, and being able to be authentic about what I love and and what I don't love, (laughs) who I love, who I've chosen to maybe slip away from, um, I find that that authenticity is what has made 64-year-old Bob believe that I'm just really at the starting point of what happiness is really about. And 59-year-old Bob never would have thought that. Um, Never would have thought that. Bob, yeah, that was a privilege to hear. There were so many good suggestions and so much honesty. I know that your sharing will help many people. Thank you. Absolutely. And one of the things that really struck me is that concept of 15 minutes between thought and action with his attempt. And if that is not a, you know, cold, hard reminder of the importance of knowing 
the early warning signs of depression and suicidality so that if somebody is nearing that edge, we can react and offer support earlier because um, 15 minutes doesn't give anybody much time to react if they're not aware of it. So we Right, and reach out for help earlier if possible. If possible, too. yeah, but we know it's often not. So, so it's really on us, you know, anybody who happens to be on the other side of of crisis um, to be to be willing to say, hey, you know, how close is how close are you? And to ask those hard questions, you know, are you suicidal? If there are indications, and getting them the help they need. And the fact again that we're hearing a stranger, mm. you know, one person in this case, you know, a nurse, yeah, reaching out and being present, and in this case, turning her job into you know, offering love and unconditional support. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just, that, that we hear it so many times, Terry, that one person can change the trajectory. We just, we do have to be that person. We do have to be that person. We even just saw it recently on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page when a, another man shared that he was suicidal at that moment. And we certainly suggested that he did things on his end um, to be safe, including getting to a hospital, but also posted on the Facebook page. And one woman's comment of the, you know, 300 really resonated with him. And he has shared since that he truly believes that she, you know, who knows where she lives, who knows where he lives, right? That's you just don't know online, helped him. She she made him feel less alone and she gave him hope. And like you say, you know, it's we got to be that person. So I'm really grateful for that reminder. And and I feel like you kind of brushed over that 300 other people in our Facebook community being there for him in the moment that he needed it. Yeah. Just offering, you know, condolence and support. Wow, Terry. Right? And I didn't mean to brush over it because it's insignificant. I actually have started to think of it as as what they do, what that community does for each other. And it is um, you know, in a in a time of incredible divisiveness, um, they come together. And isolation. And isolation. They come together and connect and support and it's just an absolutely beautiful thing. Yeah, I see it I see it more and more as the years have passed that it's um it's becoming a net. Mm. It's weaving, you know, it's weaving stories. It's weaving shared emotion. It's weaving support. It's weaving connectedness. You know, it's like forming a net. It's a beautiful image. Speaking of nets uh, and support, we will, for the rest of this month of September, which is Suicide Prevention Month, share more stories. And I think because of the number of other ones that flooded into my mind when uh, I was listening to Bob, we'll put together sort of a compilation like our Seasons in Review and just remind you of some of the stories that are out there that are already in our archive that uh, you can access and listen to the whole story if it, like the comment, like the you know post on Facebook, like what Bob just said, resonates with you. And you can find what works for you and makes you feel less alone. One of the things that I also found super powerful about Bob's sharing is that we often recite a list. You know, we, we say, these are the signs, these are the symptoms, these are what to look for in yourself and in others. And Bob put like word, words, mm-hmm. thoughts mm-hmm. To, to, the, to that list mm-hmm. 
in a way that um, resonated with me deeply. Mm-hmm. Right. Thanks again, Bob. Thank you. And thank you, Bridget. We truly hope that our podcast brings